Thanks, Matt. Good morning, church. Uh, Matt mentioned that we're in this red letter series, but uh, more specifically, we are actually in week three of sort of this three-week series within a series, uh, this chapter of Luke 15. It's this moment where Jesus shares a series of stories that reveal to us a little bit about who we are, uh, a little bit about who God is, and a lot about what the kingdom looks like and what the gospel looks like in the midst of all of that. And just in case you need a little refresher, let me remind you of the scene. Let me set the table for you here a bit. Luke chapter 15, he launches in, verse 1 and 2. He says, The tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, as we read right away, we find out that there are three groups of people here. And one way of looking at this is to consider the verbs, because the verbs really tell uh, a large part of the story. First of all, there's Jesus, who is teaching. Just amazing, phenomenal teacher. And then there are sinners and tax collectors, and they're hearing They're listening to Jesus. And then finally, there are the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And what are they doing? They're muttering. This man, they say. They can't even bring themselves to say his name. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. He's got no standards. Waters down the faith. He'll take anybody. So this is an extremely tense In your face, very explosive kind of moment. And now everybody is waiting and watching to see how will Jesus respond. Maybe he'll be a little apologetic. Maybe he'll take this opportunity to try and mend some fences, build some bridges. Maybe he'll back off the friend of sinners thing a little bit. But then Jesus starts telling stories. And the first one is about a lost sheep that's rescued. And the second one, about a lost coin that's found. And then the third one starts, and it's about a rebellious lost son who was welcomed home with extravagant grace. And all the sinners and tax collectors in the crowd are saying, Ah, that's me. I'm that lost sheep. I'm that lost coin, that lost kid. That's me. And everyone can see that Jesus is actually being fairly provocative here. Because what he's telling the religious leaders, and everyone knows it, is this. Not only do I not apologize for accepting these people, I'm telling you flat out that what you are seeing reflects the very heart of God. Now, that'd be dramatic. That'd be shocking enough and controversial enough. But it's nothing compared to what's coming next. You remember, if you were here last week, that this son, this rebellious younger brother, has taken a third of the family estate. He's gone off to a foreign land, wasted all his money, and now he's come home, shamed and destitute, but to a father who greets him with gracious open arms and an enormous party. And again, if you thought things were tense before, and they were, you haven't seen anything yet because Jesus continues and now he will introduce to us a third character into this story. Luke chapter 15, verses 25 to 32. The older brother heart. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf. Because he has him back, safe and sound. 
the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. You know, one of the marks of genius in Jesus' teaching is that we find ourselves irresistibly drawn into his stories, just sucked right in, and we tend to identify with the characters, and we put ourselves in their places. We almost can't help it. Quick story on this. One day, a Sunday school teacher is teaching on the prodigal son to his class, and he says to the class, But there is one for whom the return of the prodigal son brings no joy, kids, no celebration. There's one in this story who experiences only disappointment and bitterness and resentment. Anyone know who it was? And one of the kids raises her hand and says, The fattened calf? (laughs) You can learn a lot by asking yourself, Who do I identify with in this story? And friends, I have to say... I understand this older brother. I can relate to this guy. In my family, I am actually the oldest of two boys. And I bore all the weight of being the oldest kid, the parent's first child, you know, pride and joy on some level, firstborn son. I grew up as the good kid, fully embracing that role. I was a good athlete. I got good grades. I didn't drink, smoke, chew, or go with girls who do. I always, I was always seeking to please my parents. It's just the kind of kid I was. Trying to do the right thing, say the right words, put off the right image, be a model son. And then, then when it came time to pick a career, to decide what I should give my vocational energy to, what do you think is the most elder brotherly job a young Christian kid can choose? Any guesses? Yeah, to be a pastor. And friends, I don't want to give you the wrong impression this morning. I believe deeply that in the midst of all that stuff, in the midst of all my deceived desires and mixed up motives that God was at work and that his Holy Spirit truly called me into the ministry. But, but if I'm honest, if I'm really painfully honest, I'd tell you this, on my own, in just my own flesh, I really enjoy the idea of having a career where where people would think well of me. I like that. You see, as an attention-enjoying, people-pleasing type person, that's always been real important to me. And sometimes that can get mixed up with a calling from God. So, this hard-working, good kid, I want the credit, do the right thing, older brother, I get this guy. We're talking this morning about me. And maybe some of you. And friends, hear this, because... As we jump in, I think this is extremely important. When you cease to be the younger brother, 
When you stop being the prodigal, when you decide to come home and commit your life to God and take faith and obedience seriously, one of two things will happen to you. Either you will start to become more like the father or you will start becoming like the older brother. You know, it's actually a fairly difficult thing to stop being the prodigal son and not automatically start drifting towards becoming the older brother. Everything in your fallen, wretched, sinful soul will be pulling you that way. And we've all seen it, haven't we? We've all seen churches where under the guise of spiritual maturity, elder brotherism becomes the norm. And there is just this culture of smug, arrogant, know-it-all, better-than-you, self-righteousness that takes root in churches. And friends, I want to say right off the top, not here. Not at Cedar Mill. At Cedar Mill, we long to be people who are truly becoming like Jesus. And we will not settle for the lie and the cheap imitation of elder brotherism in its place. So this morning, to fight that tendency, we're going to get a good look at what's going on in the heart of this older brother. We're going to ask ourselves, what's the difference between older brotherism and following Jesus the way God longs for us to. And we're going to talk about three things. And as we talk about these three things, I want to ask you to do something. I want to ask you to take a real serious, long look at your own heart. And I want to ask you to go a step further. I want to ask you to invite the Holy Spirit and to ask God to help you identify and then even begin to remove any remnants of this kind of elder brother syndrome from your life. All right? Okay, here we go. Here's the story. Again, this is the drama. This is the climax. This is everything Jesus has been building up to um, uh, in this entire chapter. It all happens right here. The elder brother has been working in the fields, probably a day or more journey away, and he returns home. He approaches the house. He hears music and dancing. There is a party going on at dad's place. Now, just so you know, this is an event that would have been very special to eat meat In this day and age, it was not normal. It was considered to be a delicacy. It was not done often. And the fattened calf, it would have been able to feed upwards of a hundred people. And so everyone, everyone from the entire town, the entire village is at this party. This is a very public moment. But instead of just hearing the music and hearing the dancing and hearing the celebration and coming on in and joining the party, the older brother is what? He's instantly suspicious. His heart is just naturally bent towards saying, maybe I've been wronged. And here's where we get our first glimpse at the older brother's heart. This is verse 28. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. Eugene Peterson says it this way in the message. The older brother stalked off in an angry sulk and refused to join. You see, the first mark of the older brother heart is that it's characterized by this. Resentment. Resentment. He resented his brother for leaving, then he resented him for repenting, he resented his father for taking him back, and now he resents all these stinking people for coming to the party. And this resentment, friends, this resentment that's buried deep in the elder brother's soul and manifests itself in the same way that resentment always does by refusing to enter into joy. You see, 
resentment and joy, anger and joy, bitterness and joy, they can never go together. They're like oil and water. They simply refuse to mix. And maybe you haven't seen it because we've been breaking it up over a number of weeks, but this entire chapter, this entire 15th chapter of Luke, one of, if not the main theme of this chapter, is joy. You see, in the first story, Jesus tells of a shepherd who finds his sheep, and when he finds it, it says, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. And then he goes and gets all of his friends and neighbors, and he says, rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. Then a woman loses her coin, she finds her coin, she calls all of her friends and neighbors together, and she says, Rejoice with me! I found my lost coin. And in both these stories, it's just really interesting that Jesus wraps them up by telling us that the joy does not stop here, but it even spills over into heaven as well. See, even the angels get in on the joy. That's how big the joy is. And then the third story begins, and this prodigal son who's been far away comes home, and the father embraces him and gives him a ring and a robe and shoes, and he kills the fattened calf and says, Let's party! We have to celebrate! Joy is erupting in these stories. Shepherds, neighbors, friends, God, heaven, the entire village, even the angels, everybody enters into joy except one person, not the older brother. And so the father comes out and pleads with his son. Now, because this action by the elder son was such a slap in the face to his dad, him not taking his place at the table, him not coming into the party, would have been a very public insult to his father. And because of that, everyone would have expected that the father would send someone out or he would go out himself and he would just order his son, you get in the house now. And the son probably would have gone because this son understands orders. But you see, the father, he doesn't do that. And it's because he does not want just another hired servant. God does not simply want your external obedience. He wants a right heart. And so he invites, he reminds, he pleads. Please, son. Come in to the party. Even though no one would have expected him to take this approach. And now we can see that Jesus is kind of comparing here. Just as the father goes out to the younger brother in humble love, here again he goes to the the older brother in humble love as well. You see, no matter what side of the fence you're on, no matter what sin you're guilty of, the father always approaches you with grace and love and a second chance. But this son, this son will not go in. You see, the truth is, in a strange way, he enjoys his resentment. This is kind of a weird thing, and maybe you've never thought about it this way before. But did you know this about resentment, anger, bitterness? It's kind of fun. There's something real soothing about it. Because you get this sense when you give into it, when you yield to it, you get this sense of pleasure. This joy, this internal sort of, sort of solve on your, on your broken, hurting soul of rehearsing what a victim of mistreatment you have been. Those people, that person, I can't believe. You know, this older brother, he actually likes torturing himself, sitting out there on the front porch, listening to the music, not going inside. Let them all sing. Let them all dance. None of them know that I'm actually the one who's being victimized here. 
You see, his, his anger, his resentment, it feeds something real dark that's inside of him. It feeds his sense of self-righteousness, his sense of superiority. And so he just mulls on it. He just chews on it. He just clings to it. I'll tell you how resentment works. I read this this week, and it's a little bit of a gruesome tale, but I think it's worth considering. It's about how a method that was used in the very far Arctic north for killing wolves... Hunters would take a slab of raw meat and they would impale it on a very sharp knife and then they would leave it out in the snow. And a wolf would smell the blood from a distance and would come and would begin to eat at the meat greedily. And because of the cold and because the wolf would be in such a frenzy over its greed for food and because the taste of the blood excited the wolf so much, it wouldn't realize that over time it was actually pricking its own tongue on the knife. And then this insatiable appetite, this, this inability to back away from the food would cause the wolf to continue to cut itself and eventually cut itself so badly on the knife that it would bleed to death. The wolf would be destroyed by its own appetite for blood. Now again, I know that's a real gruesome picture, but that is exactly how resentment plays out in the life of a human soul. A theologian named Frederick Buechner writes this, Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, or roll your tongue over the prospect of bitter confrontations, to savor the last toothsome morsel, the pain that you are given, and the pain that you were giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast turns out to be you. Friends, maybe that's you this morning. Maybe there's bitterness, there's resentment, there's anger, stuff that's right on the surface. Maybe stuff that you've pushed down real deep, but it's still there. Maybe you have a parent who did not live up to your needs or a spouse who hurt you or a child who disappointed you or a wound from a friend or from work and you won't let it go. And the truth is, you are enjoying holding on. You think your resentment, my resentment, my hate, my anger, my bitterness, that's all I have left. I cannot release it. Friends, let me say this to you today as plainly as I can. You are at the knife right now. And little by little, with every lick, with every chomp, the peace and mercy and graciousness and the joy of the kingdom party are being slowly bled out of you. So I'm asking you today, are there any resentments that you need to let go of? Will you begin to forgive? If there's someone that you need to talk to, if there's someone you need to extend forgiveness to, will you talk to them? If you can't do that, will you at least ask God for the grace to begin to forgive? Will you do it now? Will you do it today? Will you make a phone call tonight if you have to? Will you go see them tomorrow or as soon as you can? This is an urgent matter. You see, there's a spirit of resentment Ruling and reigning in this son. And the father invites him to lay it down and enter into the joy of the kingdom party. But he refuses to come in. He'd rather hold on to his resentment than experience the joy of the kingdom. What about you? 
You see, now we'll see the second mark of the older brother's heart. And that's entitlement. So first we have resentment. And now we have entitlement. Luke 15, 29. But he answered his father, Look. Father comes out. Son, come into the party. Come join in the joy. Your brother is home. I so long to have you with me. Look. All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You see... One extremely striking thing Jesus' listeners would have noticed here that we kind of miss is that this kid does not address his dad as father. In fact, he attaches no formal title to his greeting at all. And in our day, that is not a big deal. But in those days, titles of respect were very, very important. Every single one of Jesus' listeners would have noticed this this fact. We don't notice it because in our culture... We do not demand that kids express enormous, enormous amounts of respect for their parents, do we? This is the same reaction I got at nine. People were unsure how to answer this question. In our culture, we do not demand that children express enormous amounts of respect for their parents. And the answer to this, in general, maybe not for you or your family, but in general, the answer is No, we do not. I just spent the weekend with a slew of 10-year-olds at my house for a birthday party, and they were all great kids, but I can tell you, like, they weren't calling me the Reverend Teixeira. Let's just say it that way. (laughs) You know, one silly example on this, on my phone there, and you have this on your phone too, there's this place in your personal contacts where Siri, if you have an iPhone, or Matilda, or whatever the Android version is, um... Uh, Siri will ask you, like, do you want to have a nickname? So I put in my name, David, Sashara, my phone, all my contact, and then it's like, do you want, is there a nickname that you go by? And you can type it in, and if you put a nickname there, then Siri will use that name for your text messages, and then also when she, like, audibly talks to you. Um, and so you can put t- stuff in there you want. Like, you can just say, like, I'm the man. And then Siri will be like, how are you, the man? Or whatever, to make yourself feel better. Well, my kids have picked up on this, and so they will grab my phone, and then when I'm not looking, they will go in, and they will put in nicknames for me into my phone. And this results in me sending texts to you that you might receive from, say, Sassy Pants. (laughs) Or the most recent one, Captain Boogernose. (laughs) And I actually thought it was kind of clever... But it's not how things worked between parents and kids in Jesus' day. No one back then referred to their dad as Captain Boogernose and got away with it. And one thing that I'll point out to you here, because you might miss this, is even the prodigal son, the way Jesus tells this story is so genius. Even the prodigal son, even the younger brother, when he comes to his dad and he says, like, I want to live like you're not even my father. I wish you were dead. Even when he comes and demands his inheritance early, listen to what he says to his dad. This is Luke 15, 12. Father, give me my share of the estate. Father, give me my share of the estate. You see, This younger brother, even in his hatred and disdain for his father, he still maintains some level of respect that the older brother completely skips over. And if you read this in in the Greek, a great translation, in a sense, what he says to his dad is, Look, you. His dad comes out, please, for him to come to the party. He says, Look, you. All these years I've been working like a slave for you. Now, do you see what he says here? This elder brother who was supposed to be his father's firstborn, most honored son, has been living out his sonship as a slave. 
All these years. He says, all these years I've been your son. He says, all these years I've been working like a slave for you. You see, a son's place, a son's status, a son's inheritance is not earned. It's freely given. No matter what you do, no matter what you say, no matter how bad things get, you'll always be my son. That's a father-son relationship, but a slave... A slave works to pay a debt. A slave works because they have to. A slave earns their place in the family. And this son, he thinks he's earned some things. This son thinks he deserves. This son is entitled to some stuff. Now again, this comment stands kind of in stark contrast to the younger brother who at least in the end comes back to the father and says what? He says, I am no longer worthy to be your son. I am no longer worthy. So younger brother comes back and here's his heart. Yeah, dad, I'm not worthy. But here's the older brother's heart. I'm worthy. I deserve. I've earned. I'm entitled. And friends, do you want to know the fastest way to discover if entitlement has taken root in the human heart? Sometimes it's hard to spot entitlement in people, isn't it? I'm going to give you a way that you can. In fact, I'm going to give you a way to look deep inside of your own soul and discover where does entitlement reside in me? Here's how you find it. Look for complaint. You see, wherever there is complaint, there will also be entitlement underneath. Listen to the older brother. Look, you, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. I didn't even get a goat, Dad. I didn't even get a party. My brother comes home and he gets a feast royale, but I never get anything. Wow, 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 wow. Friends, one way to discover where older brotherism lives in you, take a look at what you tend to complain about. And when you look there, my guess is this. Underneath those complaints is something you think that you are entitled to getting. Underneath that complaint is something you think you've earned or deserved, that you are worthy of, that's been taken away from you or hasn't come your way. And now your entitlement, the entitlement that you try to keep buried way down deep, is bubbling to the surface of your life through complaint. Here's a challenge. I've been excited about offering this all week I want us to try something together as a church. Tomorrow, here's the challenge. Tomorrow, all of us in this, right? Tomorrow, Monday, we are all going to attempt a one-day fast from complaining. Just one simple day. We're going to try this together as a church. We're just going to embrace together the spiritual discipline of gratitude. So here's how it'll go. Tomorrow morning, when you wake up, until you go to bed that night and fall asleep... No grumbling, no whining, no complaining, not a single negative word, not about your body or your money or your food or your relatives or your boss, about the spouse you don't have, about the spouse you do have. No complaining all day long. How many of you are game for taking this challenge? All right, how many of you think it's a stupid idea and you don't like it at all? You see, one of the things I believe is this. If you'll do this, if you will attempt it, what I think is that it will show some of you, it will show some of us, how hard this really is. Because here's the truth. Most of us don't even realize how much we tend to complain. Not just with our mouths, but even in our minds. 
You see, one of the things that's scary about older brotherism is that it's subtle. It's sneaky. It is extremely hard to detect and see in yourself. You see, we know what a younger brother looks like. We know younger brother lostness when we see it. I mean, you wake up in the pigsty, your life's a mess, you're an addict, you've lost your family, you've lost all your money, you discover you picked up some sexually transmitted disease along the way. That's younger brotherism. That's easy to see. But older brotherism? It's maybe more dangerous because it's stealth. You can live with it. You can actually live with it and believe that everything is perfectly fine. You can be entitled to the very core and never even realize it. Maybe if you try to not complain, you'll shine a light on it. Maybe you'll be able to see and begin to see where it lives. All right, last quality we see in the older brother heart judgment verse 30 but when this is the older brother again speaking to the father but when this son of yours he said you know I've done everything you asked I've obeyed all the rules you never even gave me a stinking goat but when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home you kill the fattened calf for him for that guy. Now, notice what language the elder brother uses to refer to the prodigal. He says what? He says, this son of yours. It's very intentional language here. It's language that says, he's not good enough for me to associate with. Parents do their, this with their kids all the time. You know, when the kid does something great, it's like, well, that's my boy. When the kid royally messes up, guess what your son did today? <laughs> right? So the older brother here, he's disassociating with the little brother. He's saying, I would never do what he's done. I could never be that bad. He is so much worse than me. He's not worthy even to be my brother anymore. He might be your son, but he's not my brother. This son of yours. You see, judgment, hear this friends, this is so important. Judgment is not just pointing out when somebody has done something wrong. All of us, every single one of us needs that. We need people in our lives who love us and care about us enough to say, you're not doing this right, and then to help us and walk us through it. That is not judgment. Pointing out right and wrong, not judgment. Judgment is when you speak from a distance. Judgment is when you kind of enjoy the failure of the other person. Judgment is when you use another person's failure to support your own growing sense of righteousness and superiority. Superiority. Let that word roll around in your brain for a minute. I'm better than you. Even if in just a very little way, in this kind of generic, cheesy, subtle little area, I'm better than you here, and I'm better than you here, and I'm doing better than you here, and it makes me feel good superiority makes me feel good about myself and that's what this brother does here he's not feeling secure enough about his position about who he is and so he has to push it push his younger brother down so that he can feel lifted up if even just a smidge friends where in your mind do you do this where in your heart where are you comparing and measuring, stacking the chips, where with your words even do you sometimes really enjoy pointing out the shortcomings of another? 
Maybe just mentioning it. Maybe in a real innocent seeming way. Maybe even in a prayer request. Are you judging the actions, decisions, words, life of someone else ever so subtly, even in a way you're not even conscious about so that you can feel superior, so that you can feel better than them if even just a little... You see, friends, that's what's in the heart of this older brother. All this junk, resentment and entitlement and judgment. But now, but now we don't just get a look at the older brother's heart. Now we get a look at the heart of the father in response. And the father will here respond with the only thing that can truly cure the heart of the older brother. Luke 15, 31, he says, My son... The father said, my son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. He goes out to him and he says, my son. Now we don't even really fully understand just how tender of a phrase this is because the usual word for son in Greek is the word huios. But Jesus has the father use a different word here. He intentionally chooses a different Greek word. He chooses the word technon, which is the word for a little child. This is a very, very tender phrase. He says, My little child. My little child, the father says, to the boy who would not even address him as father. My little child, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. Do you see what the father is offering him here? You are always with me. Our relationship is on solid ground. Everything I have is yours. The Father is offering him here grace, unconditional love. The only thing that can actually empower this older brother to lay down his resentment and entitlement and judgment, the Father is handing him here. You see, friends, this is the gospel. Hear me on this. Do not make this mistake. The message today is not go home and try really, really hard to be less angry and complaining and superior. Like, tighten the screws down, put notes on your calendar and on your mirror, set reminder alerts, and like, do everything you can to root out the resentment and entitlement and judgment from your life. That is not the message. You might be able to do it, maybe for a day. I doubt it, but we'll see tomorrow. You might be able to do it, maybe for a day, but over the long haul, trying harder will almost certainly fail every single time. Because it's just who you are. Because it's just on the inside. And you can repress it and suppress it and push it down. But eventually it is coming out. The only thing that can get rid of the older brother syndrome in you is a heart that's been changed by the amazing, unearned, unconditional, lavish, and extravagant love of the Father. The only thing that can get rid of of the older brother syndrome in you is a heart that's been changed by the amazing, unearned, unconditional, lavish and extravagant love of the Father. You see, friends, if you understand the gospel, if you truly believe the gospel, if you ingest and live out the gospel, if the gospel informs your thinking and your feeling and your life and your priorities, if the gospel is the grid through which you see everything in this world, then you're in good shape. Because if you understand that you are so lost that it took the death of the Lord of the universe to save you, if you really understand that in your heart of hearts, it will be extremely difficult to look at people in judgment and say, I'm better than you. I'm superior. God had to die because I'm so sinful, but I'm better than you. You see, that doesn't work. 
The gospel roots out judgment and superiority. If you really understand the gospel, if you really understand how the Father loves you, even when time and time again you've shamed him and humiliated him and rejected the party he's offered you, then it will be real hard to hold on to anger and resentment even when people don't treat you so well either. You see, when you understand how poorly you've treated God and how he responds, it's real hard to respond negatively with resentment and anger to other people when they wrong you. You see, if you really understand the gospel and all that you've been given in Christ and all that comes with being a follower of Jesus and making Him Lord and Savior, riches, power, glory, peace, hope, eternity, life that is full, abundant, packed with meaning and fulfillment and significance. Friends, if you understand that in Jesus, you are literally the world's first trillionaire, emotionally, spiritually, physically, in every way possible, then when someone gets your fattened calf, you won't really care. You've already got more than you could possibly imagine. How could you complain or feel entitled to more when... You have all of that in Jesus. See, the gospel will absolutely not coexist with entitlement and complaint. It just doesn't work. Not if you really believe it. Not if it's really forming and shaping you. You see, friends, the cure for the older brother heart is receiving and living in the gospel, the unconditional love of the Father offered to you and me in Jesus. And now Jesus will finish this story. Verse 32, he says to the son, the father, we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Do you see what he offers him again? Do you see what he offers him? He offers him once again to come into the party and receive his brother back as his brother, this brother of yours. He's your brother. He can be your brother. You can still come in to the party. And what's crazy about this story is that the way Jesus tells it, we never hear what happens to the older brother. It's like a cliffhanger. It's, a, it's one of those, like, to be continued that never gets continued. We do not know what happened to this kid. I mean, in every other story we know, the lost sheep gets found. The lost coin is discovered. The lost son returns home. And the older brother... Does he ever go into the party? Or does he live perpetually on the porch and his resentment and entitlement and judgment? Friends, I believe Jesus leaves this story open-ended for a reason. He knows that all of us older brother types have a decision to make for ourselves. And maybe it's the decision you need to make today as well. Will you hold on to resentment, entitlement, judgment? Or... Will you open your hands and trade those in for a life in the kingdom? Will you let the love of the Father pull you away from those things and bring you into the kingdom party of joy or not? You see, this morning as we close, we're going to have a chance to respond to the invitation. The invitation to the party is the Son, Jesus, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And friends, you have a chance to just say again today or maybe even for the first time I'm tired of living apart from the love of this father I want to receive it I want to enter in I want to be changed from the inside out by the love of this God who sent his son to die for me if you want to receive the invitation today friends it's real simple it's at the table 
It's in this meal we call the Lord's Supper, where we take the bread, the body of Christ, and the cup, the blood of Christ, and we receive it as a way of saying, yes, yes, because of what you've done for me, I can be a son of the Father. I can be a child of the King. I can enter into the party and begin to let you, God, change me from the inside out. Maybe you need to do that for the first time today. Maybe you need to declare Jesus as Lord and Savior and invite the Holy Spirit into your life to start changing you from the inside out. Go to the table, receive the bread, receive the cup, and let God begin to do a new work in you. Or maybe this morning you've done that and you're a Christian, but you've been sliding back into elder brotherism. And there's some resentment in you. And there's some entitlement in you. And there's some judgment in you. And there's some places in your life where you're really trying to earn your status before God. And maybe today's a day where you get some light shined on those places. And you go to the table and you say, God, by your help, I just want to kill that stuff in me. Help me, Holy Spirit, remember that my place in your family is only because of what you've done on the cross through your death and resurrection. There's some things need to die in your mind and heart and life this morning? Do you need to come to Christ again, maybe for the first time? Take a few minutes. Sit and ask the Holy Spirit to convict you, move you, lead you into whatever you need. And then when you're ready, come to the table, take the bread and the cup. I'd ask that you bring it back to your seat because we're going to receive the elements together this morning as a church family. And so hold on to those um, and we'll receive them in a moment. The tables are open.